Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello, hello, and hello. Welcome to another edition of Around the Coin. I am your host, Faisal Khan. Mt. Gox was one of the first crypto exchanges we all learned about and then its eventual demise. Slowly, more as more awareness about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies became mainstream, more people got involved, which meant yet more exchanges. Today, there are literally dozens of exchanges all over the world. Some are regulated, some in gray areas, and many of them are simply not regulated at all. After the euphoria of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency trading in the second half of 2017, and not to mention the ICO-filled crazy days of early 2018, the market tanked. Trading volumes are at an all-time low and we are what many consider to be in the winter of cryptocurrency. This brings me to the question of cryptocurrency exchanges. What challenges do they face? What are consumers asking for and where are we headed? To answer these questions and more, I have with me today Andy Bryant. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Bitflyer Europe. Hey Andy, how are you? Hi Faisal. Good thanks. How are you today? Good, good, good. So for those who don't know, you know, tell us your name and where do you work and what do you do? Great. Uh, so my name is Andy Bryant. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Bitfly Europe, which is the European uh, expansion arm of uh, Bitflyer, which is a Japanese headquartered uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency exchange. And what does Bitflyer do? I mean, is, is it you said you're, you're Japanese incorporated uh, of the European exchange, and I believe you also have a U.S. presence, correct? Three exchanges and all? That's correct, yeah. So uh, Bitflyer is uh, the largest Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies exchange by volume in Japan, uh, and uh, we also have offices here in Luxembourg, where I'm currently sitting, to cover the EU market. Uh, and also in San Francisco, we have a U.S. office uh, to cover uh, the U.S., of course. Um, Bitfly was founded in 2014 as a Bitcoin exchange. We've since grown to sort of multiple cryptocurrencies, but focusing on uh, sort of fiat pairings. Um, but we also have a slightly lesser known uh, R&D division, uh, a blockchain research arm, where we're working on our proprietary blockchain technology known as Miyabi. Uh, we have a license in Japan from the JFSA uh, to run as a digital exchange, a digital currency exchange. Here in the EU, we're, like, we're regulated by the CSSF as a payment institution. And in the US, we uh, have several statewide uh, licenses, including the, the 
famous bit license from the NYDFS. And that makes us uh, still the, the only exchange that's licensed across uh, the US, Japan, and the EU combined. Uh, that's a big achievement, getting a bit license from the New York DFS. That's, I think it's one of the most coveted licenses out there, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In fact, we were only the fourth company to ever get one and the first non-US company to, to get the bit license. So we were, we were pretty proud of that. So I get it. You know, if you need US customers, you need to be licensed in all the states in the US. But why the need for licenses across Europe and Japan? Uh, wouldn't the Japanese license suffice for you to take clients from all over the world, barring the US clients? Um, not if we want to handle uh, euros and sort of, uh, you know offer our services and, and make financial promotions in, in the EU. Uh, we, we want it to be uh, licensed uh, by an EU regulator as well. Of course, uh, there are many exchanges that aren't taking this approach to regulation, um, but it's something that we care about quite a lot because we think regulation is fundamental to the future of uh, crypto and and virtual currencies. Uh, So that's why we've taken this approach. So how come you didn't get licensed in like Estonia? Estonia has a crypto exchange license and so does Malta. Why get uh, get a a payment institution license uh, out of uh, Luxembourg? That's a good question. Um, at the time when our uh, CEO, Yuzo Kana, was uh, looking at the expansion, it had always been part of his roadmap to expand uh, out, outside of Japan. And we were looking carefully at which countries to go into in the EU. Um, and the kind of the precedent was was quite important to us. So we were looking at sort of where else had a crypto exchange been granted a license. And uh, the only example we could find at that time was was uh, Bitstamp, who had also received a license from the CSSF here in Luxembourg. So for us, it was kind of down to either Luxembourg or London. Uh, and then, you know, a timely decision of, of the Brexit referendum made that decision slightly easier for us. But the main reason was the, the you know, the case study of, of Bitstamp. What about these uh, so-called crypto-only exchanges that are propping up all over the world? How are they handling their licensing regimes? Well, the short answer is, uh, you know, most of them aren't bothering because they're, they're, you know, they're they're operating in a slightly uh, grey area in the sense that they're waiting for clarification from the regulators about, you know, how to handle and, and process uh, cryptocurrency payments and and transfers. So, uh, until that coordinated response and clarity comes from the regulators, they're able to operate, um, you know, without the same licensing that we have. Uh, so, yeah, that's the main reason. But doesn't that bother you because in some manner you are piggybacking their uh, fiat to crypto and crypto to fiat rails because they come to you, they convert their fiat to crypto, they take it on to these other exchanges, do their trading and come back to you for the off ramp. You know, isn't that like a nested solution that, you know, regulators sort of don't like? It's an interesting point. I think at the end of the day, once you're in this crypto world, then of course there's like universe of things you can do in terms of trading between different tokens and and micropayments and moving things around but at the end of the day as you said the on-ramps and the off-ramps are important and uh, they're the only way for, for many people to actually get into this space if, if they're only starting with fiat they need a way to convert fiat to crypto so i think that's why the regulators have chosen to uh, sort of focus in on exchanges as the main uh, or the easiest place to to regulate and uh, that's why we think that being suitably licensed and and uh, credible uh, is is a good strategy because 
at the end of the day, we are an important uh, part of the ecosystem for the time being. And even if we start talking about decentralized exchanges, you know, at some point, people still need to buy Bitcoin with uh, with fiat money. So uh, true, true. We, we occupy that role. Uh, borrowing the uh, territories that you're licensing, are you picking up customers from outside these territories? For example, you know, are you picking up customers from Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia or Southeast Asia? Um, I can't go into too much detail about exactly uh, the breakdown of our customers. Um, but, you know, in the EU, we're targeting uh, EU customers. In the US, we're targeting US customers. And in Japan, we're targeting Japan customers. Um, at the moment, there are, it is possible to... Uh, to onboard to Japan, uh, if you're outside of Japan, based on the the, the freedoms of our of our license, but only uh, in an inbound fashion. So we, we don't market actively outside of our jurisdictions. Okay. Of course, there are like countries that we uh, don't accept customers from um, because of various you know sanction lists and, and other things. But uh, in general, we're focusing on our core market, which is EU, US, and Japan. So you're not, um, let's say, truly international, like let's say the competition would be like Bitstamp or Cryptopia or Binance, etc. that are accepting customers from pretty much, uh, barring the sanction list countries, but pretty much from everywhere in the world, provided you can provide a KYC document to go with it. Uh, we're not actively marketing in some of these other areas yet, but when we do, you'll be the first to know. Okay, fair enough. And what about payout currencies? What what are you supporting right now? So in Japan, we're supporting uh, the Bitcoin to Japanese yen uh, fiat pairing, as well as sort of futures and uh, FX in 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 those terms. Uh, but then we also support altcoins, including Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, uh, Lisk, Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, and Mona Coin, which is sort of like the Doge Coin of Japan. Uh, here in the EU, currently we're still just a uh, Bitcoin Euro. Um, market and in the US it's the Bitcoin US dollar market. So you haven't taken things like uh, Ethereum or Ripple or Stellar or Tron and so forth? Not yet. No, I mean until uh, recently I, I, I tended to tell people that we uh, have a similar approach to Coinbase in the sense that we're focusing on the, the blue chips and the large market cap coins. Uh, although I note that Coinbase has recently started expanding their, their offering. Um, so Japan was one of the unique countries that really, you know, thought this through and said, you know what, let's license this thing. They got a lot of FDI, foreign direct, you know, investment coming in. And I think they had about, a, if I'm not mistaken, about 100 applications for the exchange. How many are live and what's the competition scene over there like? Yes, you're right. There's a long line out the door for um, this Japanese virtual currency exchange license. And I think that's partly because Japan had the uh, foresight and the wherewithal to uh, to to be quite proactive and forward-looking in this regard. Actually, our CEO was instrumental in in helping draft the law, like the change to the the Payments Act, which was a precursor to to the virtual currency exchange. So license. this is the the chairman now, right? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. You, you look yeah. Um, so. Yeah, Japan was kind of ahead of the curve in that respect. And uh, while there were like a large, long line of people applying for the license, uh, Bitflyer was actually on the first list of uh, licenses that had been, uh, well, the first list of exchanges that were registered with the JFSA. So we were amongst like the first handful. And by now, I think a couple of dozen have been granted already. But there are, yeah, a long line of, of exchanges waiting. It was really nice to read that there's actually a Japanese Virtual Currency Exchange Association now. Tell us a, li a little bit more about that. 
yeah, so there was actually a couple of uh, industry-led associations originally. There was the JBA, the Japan Blockchain Association, and then the JABA. Uh, and then the those two basically merged more recently and became the JBCEA, so the Japan Virtual Currencies Exchange Association. So the purpose of that is just to, uh, you know, basically a self-regulatory organization for for uh, for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency exchanges to to uh, coordinate and communicate and and develop best practices amongst ourselves with a strong connection to the regulator. So let's say looking at now, and you know, it's the 1st of February so when we're recording this podcast and looking a year back, how much has changed in the in the overall space of cryptocurrency trading? Well, I mean, a year ago, it was a very different time, right? It was like right after the sort of peak of the, the latest uh, bull run. Yeah, it was and, an open uh, season, right? Basically. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. I think, of course, like the main thing that's changed is that that was, um, you know, that was really the, the first big bull run driven by the, the ICO boom. And uh, while kind of that is basically now sort of come come back down to earth, I think ICOs in general were were a welcome development because they really introduced people to the, sort of the benefits of tokenization in terms of, uh, you know, faster settlement times and uh, increased liquidity to, to retail investors. Um, I kind of liken the ICO boom to the invention of fire. You know, it was kind of a really exciting new technology, but without the right controls, uh, people could get burned or you know, the house could burn down. Uh, whereas now, if people are talking much more about security tokens. And for me, to borrow from the same analogy, if, if ICOs was, was fire, security tokens is more like a internal combustion engine. So it takes that fire and puts it in a much more controlled environment um, where we can add uh, sort of security and controls and, and layers that make it a much more powerful proposition and much more lending itself to, to more credibility and future applications. Hmm. I mean, we are in the winter season now, and it really seems like the last year has been the you know, the winter of discontent rather than the summer of discontent. You know, it's been a Bitcoin winter, a cryptocurrency winter. The big mm-hmm. boys have not stepped in as was perceived. You know, uh, what what is happening generally in in, in the in the scene? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, volumes are down considerably. The valuations are down by in some measure to 95% for certain coins. Mm-hmm. Where, as an exchange operator, what do you foresee in the next 12 months as far as user activity is concerned, uh, especially with respect to the base coin tokens like you know, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple, etc.? Yeah, I think what, one of the most notable things about what you said is that you didn't call it a bubble and you didn't call it you know the death of crypto. You called it winter. So, And that's what everyone else is calling it. They're calling it the crypto winter. They're, they're basically acknowledging that this is a seasonal uh, thing and no one's actually this time a year ago or or last time this happened after sort of the 2013 um, bull run and subsequent bear market more people were talking about you know the death of crypto and you know, this is all over now people are calling it crypto winter so they're basically uh, they're basically kind of subscribing to the view that this is a cycle and I think anyone that's been in this market for more than 12 months understands that this is a similar pattern that's happened several times now, five or six times Bitcoin has gone up by multiple X, you know, 10, 20 X in price, and then lost sort of 70, 80% sort of retracement. Um, it did it when it went from sort of zero to $1 and back down again. And it did it again when it went to you know, $100, $200 and back down again. 
same with $1,300 and then with $20,000. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I can't give any guidance on price. I don't like to – people ask me about No, no, I'm not even asking on the price thing. I'm just um, asking with respect to the general, you know, the, the – the, okay, fine, the bubble, the bubble, if you were to take the word bubble, the euphoria mm-hmm. bubble has gone back. But what about, you know, the trading itself? You know, how, how is that looking? Are people going to jump back in the ring? Mm. Well, I think, of course, like when – when the price goes down, uh, most of the sort of fear of missing out driven retail demand does tend to to languish. Um, we've seen that in terms of a, a drop in sort of user registrations for our more consumer-faced uh, product. But meanwhile, sort of behind the scenes, all of the sort of day traders and sophisticated sort of high-volume traders are still fairly active. So that's the sort of behavior that I'd expect from seeing kind of prices uh, coming down. The, the, the traders that are making sort of daily profits are not really worried so much about the absolute price so much as the volatility. Uh, and whereas it's when the price is kind of shooting higher, that's when you tend to see retailer interest pick up. It's good that you mentioned it, you know, individuals. Uh, how, is, how is your exchange volume? I'm not saying give me the numbers, but are you more individual trader customer uh, focused or are you more institutional focused so we basically have products for both um right now we're focusing more on the on the consumer side in the sense that we're sort of developing uh more optionality for our retail traders we're working very hard on our so-called kind of bitcoin buy sell brokerage service where instead of having an open order book where our users trade with each other we have more of a accessible, easy-to-use interface where people can create accounts and then they can buy and sell Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies directly from Bitflyer. So that's more of a kind of over-the-counter or sort of brokerage service. Um, and of course, like as Bitcoin starts to mature and, and come of age, and more people are uh, stepping into this into this asset class, uh, we see a good opportunity to to focus our energies towards uh, the more mainstream market. And what about uh, awareness? Because, you know, I did a very brief survey. I reached out to a few people and I asked them to, you know, list some exchanges that are well-known, etc. Your name didn't come up. You know, that, that was very surprising. I mean, it's there. It's, you know, I saw some of your statistics posted on your website, 250 billion plus traded in 2017, which is a huge number, uh, slightly more than what, you know, uh, Nordea and Danske have been accused of for money laundering, you know. But... I mean, that's a huge number by any chance. But the fact that people don't know you, uh, you know, on a drop of a dime, how do you how do you change that perception? It's a good point. I mean, I think what's interesting about Bitfly is that in uh, in Japan, we are a household name. And this isn't just within crypto uh, fans either. Like we have a sort of... So I, 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 I will, I'll pause over there and I'll, I'll make you pause and I'll say that, you know, I didn't reach out to anyone in Japan. So I'm sure that would have been true, but it was predominantly European and American uh, folks that I reached out to. Yeah, and this is it. I think we, we did a great job in Japan um, increasing our brand recognition. It's it's sort of right up, up into the sort of the high double digits in terms of household awareness. And that's partially thanks to a pretty successful TV commercial campaign we had a, a very um, good timing so we we kind of successfully had a marketing coup over in japan and uh but yeah you're absolutely right i think in in the us and the eu we, we we don't enjoy the same same brand awareness so that's the job for me and for my counterparts in the us that's something that we're working on now and we're we're pleased with our roadmap for that but it's still fairly early in our expansion stories so i'd expect that to change 
So since uh, last summer, I've been reading that you your exchange has more been focusing on getting, for lack of a better word, and you know nomenclature, really notwithstanding, you're getting its act together, right? You know, getting more compliance and governance issues resolved, uh, more on security, drumming down uh, areas and tightening the areas related to money laundering, etc. Tell us a little bit more about that, because you know you were chided in many ways by the FSA in Japan for this. Yeah, so what happened is that uh, back in March, as we know, uh, one of our bigger rivals in Japan, Coincheck, got hacked to the tune of $500 million worth of NEM tokens. Now, up to that point, the, the JFSA had been sort of um, quite supportive of the industry and, and uh, you know, rightly trying to encourage innovation and and a growth of this exciting new space. And then after Coincheck, they suddenly kind of became a lot more, uh, let's say, uh hawkish which is absolutely right you know i mean they're obviously worried about um consumer protections and things like that so they they ordered a an industry-wide uh audit of the licensed or registered uh virtual currency exchanges which included bitfly but also included all of the other registered exchanges um and that exercise culminated in uh, them issuing a business improvement order to uh, us as well as all basically all the other exchanges and the subject the you know the topics of that a business improvement order was as you as you rightly said it's just to strengthen to strengthen uh some of our processes basically trying to bring us up to sort of bank you know proper financial institution uh levels of quality and you know we've always been welcome to the regulators we've always had a good relationship with the regulators and, and we we took their advice on board and we've been working since then to put into practice some of their recommendations uh without um you know, without any any problem with doing that, because we we really think that we, we take regulation seriously and, and and we want to be, you know, uh, credible and watertight. Yeah. Did it take any wind out of your trading volumes just by being compliant with the or you know trying to be compliant and the process of being compliant with what the FSA wanted you to do? You know, I think part of the things that we were asked to do as part of this, um, improvement order was to. Uh, temporarily suspend onboarding new customers so in that regard uh, it took the wind out of the sales in terms of our new volume growth and yes in other respects we're we're putting a lot of resources into into making ourselves uh, you know very very watertight and and high quality compliance procedures um, when we could have been spending the same resources on uh, big flashy marketing campaigns and and things like that so yeah to from that perspective, we have been sort of focusing more uh, introvertly this year instead of uh, going out there. But, but uh, you know, being a bear market, it's a, it's a good time for us to be doing this. We're, we're just focusing on kind of heads down development um, improvement projects and preparing for, for the next big wave up. Sure, sure. Uh, but, you know, there have, been, there have been some issues. I mean, I was reading uh, Cryptopia, which is one, in, uh, I believe it's an exchange out of New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, just got hacked a few days ago and, you know, a couple of million dollars worth of Ethereum tokens were taken out. And then it was, was more ironic, not to mention funny, is whilst they were being investigated by the police and forensic experts, more tokens got stolen during that time. And now the number stands at 23 million. How does your exchange, now that you're being regulated and there's a consumer financial angle to it, how does your exchange sort of, you know, alley this fear that, you know, if, if tokens are placed, they can be placed with a trust of the consumer and that they will not be hacked? 
Well, I mean, we, we're of course like very serious about this topic, and it's what we sort of what keeps us up at night, and what we spend all of our um, time and efforts uh, uh, sort of polishing and, and and improving. You know, we we use state of the art servers and technology. We use state of the art network um, protocols. We have like large and very capable security teams, including people we hired from you know the US DoD and and so forth. Uh, nearly all of our uh, coins are kept in sort of very deep cold storage, so not touching our exchange. We have early warning signs if um, there's any kind of strange behavior going on in terms of trading patterns or transactional patterns. So really we're using state-of-the-art uh, techniques and teams and infrastructure to to satisfy all of the obligations of a financial institution. Do tokens placed in your organization, are they insured by any ways? We do have an insurance policy in Japan, yes, which has global coverage. So explain that to us. What, what does that mean? Uh, I've got to be honest at this point, I don't quite know all the, the, the fine details of our insurance policy, so it's something I would need to um, get back to you on. But it does offer a level of protection on our um, customer assets. And coming down to something, again, a little bit more ironic, we do talk about decentralized exchanges, or rather we don't talk enough about decentralized exchanges, yet the, the very token that you are trading on your centralized exchange happens to be decentralized. Where do you see the market going? Do you see decentralization exchanges or DEX, as they're commonly affectionately called, coming up? If so, what role would you have to play? And especially once these exchanges do go uh, the decentralized route, how will they be, um, in many ways, regulated? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, um, I I think decentralized exchanges are a very interesting topic, and I think they definitely have a future. I think they're very exciting technology. Um, but as I alluded to earlier, at the end of the day, if you want to be uh, interacting and, and conducting yourself on these exchanges, uh, you will need to, at some point, get into the ecosystem. So if, if that means spending Japanese yen or US dollars on, on buying Bitcoin as your kind of reserve cryptocurrency, then you won't really be able to do that on a decentralized exchange, at least not uh, in, in the current state of, of, of affairs. Uh, I don't sort of see, um, I see centralized and decentralized exchanges sort of running in parallel, side by side, not really challenging each other at this stage. I do think it's an interesting technology and it's something which I think a lot of us are looking at. More like hub and spoke, right? Where you are the playing the role of the hub. Yeah, you could put it like that. Absolutely. I think that's a good way of putting it. I think, obviously, there's pros and cons of both, right? With the centralized exchange, of course, uh, we are like uh, collecting and holding a large amount of assets for our customers. So we need to be very careful about security around that and our compliance procedures. Uh, but it does mean that we also command a very sort of large liquidity pool. And uh, we have a proprietary matching engine that can sort of settle and, and transact these trades very fast. The decentralized exchange, you, you don't have the um, centralized accumulation of assets, but then you do have to think about the matching engine and the order book. And actually, you can decentralize one or both of those things. You can have a decentralized order book and a centralized matching engine, or you can have a decentralized matching engine and a centralized order book. And then you start to need to think about all of these second layer protocols to square those circles. For instance, I, I know you had an, an interview with the Radar Relay guys um, quite recently, and I think those kind of protocols are, are looking into these problems, but they are very much te- technical, technological problems that we need, to, we need to solve. What about institutional players? Where, where do they stand? You know, when we talk about the likes of JP Morgan and Wall Street entering or 
the the financial district from London entering into this mainstream and trading and you know the price going up to the moon when is that going to mm-hmm. happen specifically now that we keep hearing that there are you know uh, i guess mixed signals being given by various governments venezuela is one russia is one uh, some sort of mm-hmm. other nations that they might start looking at wealth creation value storing on the blockchain on the crypto world and perhaps the ramps might start with bitcoin mm that's a very interesting topic and i think well there's two slight there's, there's two topics in there there's the institutional investors and then there's sort of government interest oh. that you mentioned i think um the interesting thing about institutions is there's there's what they say and then there's what they do right so there's plenty of uh, sort of big banks that go out and they kind of they say certain things about cryptocurrencies whether it's uh, you know positive or negative comments and then but that's like that's on the face of it and then meanwhile many of these big banks even if they're saying not exactly favorable things about crypto publicly um they're meanwhile opening up all sorts of trading and, and their own desks and making investments behind the scenes so we're certainly seeing um a sort of increased interest in institutional interest behind the scenes uh, we're seeing a growth and and uh, sophistication of the OTC markets and the way I see it and I've kind of read similar things from other influencers is that uh, you know if you're a hedge fund or a pension fund and uh, you're sort of trying to find yield in this yield starved uh, environment trying to figure out what to invest in uh, and you've got more and more of your investors coming to you and saying hey uh, you know what about crypto? What about Bitcoin? What about these gains? In my in my mind, that the the risk reward or the risk return ratio is still asymmetric. So uh, while that's still the case, in the future, it's not going to be a question of who's who is invested in Bitcoin or crypto. It's going to be a question of which funds are not invested in Bitcoin. Because if you're a fund manager, you have a fiduciary duty to de- deliver returns for your clients. And if you don't put even one percent or half a percent or two percent of your entire portfolio in this new asset class, uh, I think there'll come a time when that is looked unfavorably by investors. I mean, if you look at the size of the derivative market, which you know, depend who you talk to, can be anywhere from seven hundred trillion to a thousand, or maybe eleven hundred trillion. Looking at just one percent of that, I mean, just one percent of a thousand trillion would be about what ten trillion. You know, yeah. and imagine ten. Oh, forget ten trillion. Let's just just take one trillion. One trillion being entered into the Bitcoin ecosystem. What that would do for the market? Do you see that really realistically happening? Because you know there was a very cool uh, thing going on on Facebook. I'm sure you must be aware. It's the ten year challenge. Put your ten year photograph. You know, the one that you had ten years ago with the one that you have now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. on the various crypto forums, they were, you know, making a, uh, they were taking the Mickey out of it by, by by putting the ten year ago price of all these coins versus today, and the, you know, showing the phenomenal growth. Uh, so, where do you see ten years from now? Mm. Well, you know, as Hal, as the late Hal Finney uh, said, and I'm afraid I don't know his exact words, so I'm paraphrasing. But you know, every day that Bitcoin survives without going away. It's getting stronger. It's building more trust. It's attracting more uh, interest and investment. And uh, you know, it's been ten years now, and it's still here. So I personally don't think it's going anywhere. And you're right; it would only take a small amount of uh, reallocation from existing portfolios, which potentially make a, a big difference to the price. I like to remember that um, you know, 
for me, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are a new asset class. And really, it's the first new asset class we've had since you know, 300 years ago when the Bank of England wrote the first gilt-edge security. So really, this isn't just a new company or a new stock or a new equity product. This is a whole new uh, ball game here. So as long as, uh, you know, failing in any sort of huge uh, catastrophe in, in the space or some sort of security breach, which I think is unlikely, uh, yeah, there are, there are some exciting times ahead for, for this market and for the pricing. A very interesting question that was popped up to me is how do the existing commodity and currency and uh, equity exchanges that have a very large user base, have a very seasoned presence in their, in their respective territories for you know uh, getting investments and so forth, how will they play out in the, in the coming years when they feel that this is something that they need to step into? How will, and I'm not talking about your Nasdaqs and NICEs. I'm talking about emerging markets. I'm talking about the, you know, the Manila Stock Exchange or the Bombay Stock Exchange or the Karachi Stock Exchange or the Stock Exchange in Johannesburg and so forth. How will they come into the play vis-a-vis you know crypto exchanges like yours and they themselves trying to enter that space yeah i see an increasing number of win-win partnerships whereby the sort of established exchanges such as the ones you mentioned who can bring uh you know great uh sort of customer bases and great uh capital and and know-how in terms of you know high high frequency trading and settlement things like that uh but they don't have the the know-how in terms of how to handle crypto assets, how to handle crypto security, how to handle hard forks and understanding these types of, of peculiarities. Um, that knowledge, of course, that is possessed by the existing crypto exchanges who have sort of started from the other side. So I see an increasing number of cooperation between the old and the new uh, and partnerships which and potentially mergers which will eventually result in sort of uh, multi-service exchanges and financial institutions. And do you see the traditional, you know, uh, instruments that are being traded on these equity exchanges uh, coming on the crypto exchanges? I mean, you know, uh, people would love to buy, you know, I don't know, 48 cents worth of Berkshire Hathaway or, you know, $34 worth of IBM. Uh, Would such micromanagement products or, you know, uh, highly divisible shares come onto the crypto market? Yes. And I'm actually, I think you've touched on upon something really exciting there because i mean everyone talks about security tokens right but um few people kind of really truly understand the point that or you know they're talking about stable coins and what's the I point mean, of stable fractional, coin or, fractional ownership and when we talk fractional ownership when it comes down to the kind of change that is sitting in your sofa when you enable that change like the one you know is is when you talk about pennies and those pennies can be invested into stocks and you know pennies drops make oceans it can have a huge, huge impact. Yet, it's a utopian dream for many, but I think it's not far away. Exactly. And yeah, and this is what I mean, because like fractional ownership is just one example of a brand new paradigm, which is enabled by these sorts of technologies. Because I think, you know, there'll be there'll be existing security. But we're talking about, and I'll come on to the fractional ownership thing um, shortly, but because it's related. But um, yeah, when we talk about security tokens, there's the, it goes in two directions, right? There's actually tokenization of existing securities and then securitization of existing tokens. Um, so people think about, uh, oh, okay, well, we'll just take IBM stock and we'll tokenize it so we can trade it, so we can have better liquidity or 24-7 markets or whatever, so what? But then there's, there's also 
entirely new industries that can entirely new applications that become possible by this tokenization. As you pointed out, there's fractional ownership, um, but and but there's also brand new uh, assets that can now or income streams that can now be tokenized. I'm talking about things like. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, we've got your your fractional ownership of art or, or well, other real real estate is the, is is the low hanging fruit, right? So you countries can say, hey, listen, you know, I'm going to a, a, a person can say, I'm going to construct a building. It's six seven hundred million dollars. You know, let me give you shares down seven hundred million shares. You can buy a dollar's worth of share, and I'll and I'll do a guarantee buyback at at seven percent a year after five years. You know. Yeah, yeah, and I often use real estate and Berkshire Hathaway shares as a good example. But even still, that is just um, that's more like a tokenizing a, an asset value. But we also we can start talking about income streams. What about the income streams from uh, from song rights or from movie rights or an income stream from from a small family restaurant business? These these can all start to become securitized and and actually traded as uh, as a new kind of tokenized form of, of small business. So I think there's a whole segment of the economy uh which can be sort of turbocharged by uh adding these security tokenization wrappers and getting them out into the market and getting a tradable uh platform um and we can unlock a whole whole huge amount of economic value from these types of technology andy who gets to do this is it not incumbent upon you to go and say okay you know we can we can take this and repackage it or package it in a different way and have a uh, and trade in our in our exchanges because you have an exchange, or do you sort of wait on the sidelines and sit on the bench and wait for someone to trot along and say, "Hey, would you do this for me?" Well, that's a really good question because you know there's there's tokenization, there's there's tokenizing existing securities, there's there's uh, securitizing existing tokens, there's brand new uh, assets which or income streams that can be converted into smart contracts, and all of those things have completely different. Uh, sort of value propositions and require different skill sets. So I think it'll be a combination of sort of new tech companies, of existing kind of crypto uh, uh, incumbents, uh, and then traditional uh, financial institutions too. Uh, It's difficult to know how it'll play out, but I certainly think once people start to catch on that security tokenization is not simply a re-wrapping or repackaging of something that exists, but a new vehicle to to onboard brand new areas of economic activity. I think there'll be like a large and fast growth of, of this industry and, and many new players. And I take it you will be at the center of it and, and also be the catalyst, correct? We're certainly looking at it closely. Andy, earlier you mentioned something about your Miabi blockchain. What is it? Explain it to me like I'm five years old. So Miabi is a, block, a proprietary blockchain technology which we're developing in-house. Uh, we're kind of quite pleased with it because um, we think it takes all of the benefits of existing blockchains, such as you know immutability, Byzantine fault tolerance, no single point mm-hmm. of failure. But it addresses the common criticisms of um, open blockchains. For instance, we can actually offer transaction finality, which is important for some institutions. Uh, we have improved processing capabilities, so you know, thousands of transactions per second with payload instead of simply a few. Um, so you know. It's not just yet another blockchain that we're working on. I think we're kind of proud because we really do have uh, existing use cases, both in production and proof of, co- uh, proof of concepts. Uh, examples being in production, we have uh, you know an insurance documents uh, application where we're communicating between headquarters and insurance branches uh, in Japan. We're working with a real estate rental management company, Sekisui House, where we're managing their real estate information on a blockchain with the intent of creating a corporate consortium. 
Uh, we're working on a proof of concept with the Japan Bankers Association, where we're basically working on an inter interbank settlement mechanism on Miyabi. Uh, so this is something that we're really starting to focus on um, because we we see it as a key differentiator and value proposition of our of our technology. So- for others to participate in and like sort of go on i mean is there like an sdk or a, i don't know a sandbox environment where people can come and start playing with it uh if people want to start playing with it the best thing to do is to get in touch with us we, we have like a, a bunch of, of things that we're working on in a kind of uh in in a sandbox environment but as far as i'm aware there's no sort of public portal right now to to start playing with that so how different is this from, let's say, I don't know, Ethereum and their smart contracts? Uh, so Ethereum, of course, is a, you know it's an open blockchain, which means that the the, the, the decision making and the system are, are both decentralized. Uh, as anyone that's following Ethereum knows, that with uh, applications like CryptoKitties completely clogging the <laughs> the, the system uh, last year, Ethereum still suffers a little bit from um, scalability, as as most public blockchains do. So what we're doing is we're, as a private blockchain, we're, we're not suffering from some of those scalability issues and we can offer uh, sort of all the benefits of open blockchains, but with some other benefits uh, of a private blockchain at the same time. And these uh, contracts or these applications that you have running on Miabi, they're being run on the exchanges that you are licensed for right now? I mean, can uh, can I sign up for them and use them? Or is it a, a very bespoke use case that is only applicable to, let's say, the clients of that insurance company? So bespoke, customizable, and we're very open to talk to like any, uh, any whole variety of different projects and, and clients. Uh, so it's a B2B product right now. Uh, so, yeah, I'm afraid you can't just download a, a version of it and start playing around. Um, but we are building it with the intention of, of, of big things. And, and, and that's why we're uh, building customizability and, and differentiation into it from the start. We do, have a, we do have a smart contract layer for it. And then we think it's very flexible. Uh, we actually have some things that we haven't really seen before, like... Uh, we maintain transaction security by actually inspecting blocks before they're generated to prevent fatal bugs. Uh, but you know, this is the point where we start getting into the point where I'd need to refer you to our to our RMD engineers because I don't know the, the full detail of it. Well, thank you for explaining it, Andy. It's been wonderful to have you, Bitflyer. How can people get in touch with you, and how can they learn more about your products? Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been really great to chat to you. I think uh, feel free to reach out to me. Um, our, our website is uh, bitfly.com. Uh, if you want to get to the EU site, it's bitfly.com forward slash en dash EU. Uh, and myself, you can find me fairly easily on LinkedIn, Andy Bryant, uh, Bitflyer. Uh, and yeah, be happy to, to, to be in touch. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Thank you, Paisal. The views and opinions expressed on any program are those of the hosts, co-hosts, and guests appearing on the show and do not necessarily reflect the view of the owners and producers of the show. Paid advertisements in form of audio announcements may appear throughout the show, including this one. Advertising can also include print and other digital formats. The owners and producers of Around the Coin do not endorse or evaluate the advertised product, service, or company, nor any of the claims made by the advertisement. All programs are subject to a one-time charge for professional editing fees, for which the interviewing guest or guests may have contributed towards. 
The owners, producers, hosts, co-hosts, and guests on the show are not financial advisors. Any investment advice or opinion cited during the show is for information purposes only. None of the content is intended to be investment advice. Seek a duly licensed professional for investment advice. If you believe there's been any violation of your copyright, trademark, service mark, or any other type of intellectual property, please inform us in writing by sending an email to legal at aroundthecoin.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.